Hey everybody, welcome to Legal Tech Week, our live roundtable where we talk about the week's top stories in legal tech and legal innovation and whatever else strikes our fancy uh, Supreme Court comings and goings and and uh, and whatever else. Uh, it is July 8th, 2022. I am Bob Ambrogi. Uh, I write the blog Law Sites and also have the podcast Law Next. And of course, also have the Law Next Legal Technology Directory if you're looking for a place to find legal tech products. Uh, and our panelists this week, as you see before you are, uh, who wants to kick it off? Nikki, you want to start us off with your beautiful uh, background there? Sure. Uh, my name is Nikki Black. I'm the Legal Technology Evangelist with My Case Law Practice Management Software. I write legal tech columns for the ABA Journal Above the Law. Uh, and the daily record and occasionally for the my case blog as well and uh, I'm looking forward to today I had to miss last week unfortunately well glad to have you back Victor how about you hi everyone my name is Victor Lee I am assistant managing editor for the ABA journal handling business of law and technology and I also missed last week as well so I'm, I'm looking forward to this too uh, and Joe Joe Patrice from Above the Law and the Thinking Like a Lawyer podcast. I uh, I was out of town last week. I'm finally back in the correct time zone. Uh, I mean, that's not fair, but in the more manageable time zone. How about that? And I did it by driving cross country. And so now I'm, uh, I, I've seen everything and uh, I'm just glad to be home. You, you drove across country on purpose? Yeah, because as it turns out, uh, airline tickets to portland were like fifteen hundred dollars a person i know it's crazy it's crazy and it was like a thousand for me to drive so it was actually cheaper yeah yeah wow uh and uh last but not least steve steve embry i publish and uh write the blog tech law crossroads and in fact i do everything with the blog anyway uh <laughs> and i was also not here last week so Gosh, without me and Victor and Nikki, it must have been a boring show last week. <laughs> uh, yeah, it totally was. Uh, I don't even remember what we <laughs> talked about. Um, no, not at all. Uh, anyway, uh, well, uh, let's see. What do we got? To, we actually we had we actually had something very interesting that happened this week. Uh, I think uh, as a spinoff of last week's was it last week's show where we talked about. Uh, Decisis, which is this new legal research service that uh, LexisNexis sort of uh, uh, almost uh, kind of privately launched. I mean, not privately, secretly launched. I mean, they, they launched it, but they don't. There's nowhere on the website that you can find that uh, uh, it was launched by LexisNexis uh, or by its parent company. Um, but uh, somebody who uh, was watching the show last week was inspired to go check it out uh and uh he wrote a review of it and and emailed it around i think did all the panelists get that uh, he emailed his review of it around to to all of us uh and uh uh actually emailed him asking if he's if he would like to have it published i'd put it up on my blog because it's a really good interview and i see he's actually in the audience i don't know i, I hate to call on somebody if they don't want to be called on but uh uh if if you're interested in, in in talking a little bit about what you what you saw, I, I can I can uh, bring you up to the floor. If oh you are raising your hand, all right, I'm going to uh, click on mm -hmm. this. Might just let you talk, Jeff. Uh, Jeff, can we hear you now? Are you there? Yes, I am. Hello. Hey, how are you doing? Is, am I pronouncing? Is it Jeffrey Hevernan? Is that right? You got it exactly right. Yes, sir. Yeah. Hey, so I, that was very cool of you to do that, and. Uh, uh, I wonder, I mean, do you want to just take a couple minutes to share what you what you concluded about it, what you found about it? Yeah, absolutely happy to. And, uh, you know, and, number and one, who you are, uh, first of all, who, what do you oh, do? And yeah. Who you are, yeah. yeah, absolutely. So, uh, yeah, my name is Jeffrey Heffernan. Uh, I'm a solo attorney in energy law. I've been practicing, uh, well, about two decades. Uh, a little more than the first 10 years was in-house and the rest has been solo. Um, and, uh, and I do whatever I can to try to make my life easier as far as technology goes. Um, and so I'm always looking for, uh, better tools. Um, and it's, uh, I, I always find it to be a struggle, but, uh, um, but that's, uh, so, and, and I just recently in the last, uh, 
I guess, few weeks started uh, uh, tuning in or zooming in uh, to Legal Tech Week and uh, finding it very informative. Uh, last week, uh, you mentioned uh, Decisis, uh, and I saw that that's, that new service uh, had a free trial uh, for uh, solo attorneys and two attorney law firms. So I, I, I signed up and uh, gave it a try. And uh, uh, interesting. Uh, yeah. <laughs> uh, what did you think? <laughs> well, um, so, you know, I, and I, I actually, I almost wish I knew, I didn't know that it was owned by a much larger group, that is to say Lexus, but I don't know if that would have helped or hurt one way or the other. So um, I did a very short try, just a few hours, looking for a couple of things. Um, I looked for one of my favorite cases. It's a New York Court of Appeals case uh, from 1892. Uh, it had the case. Um, I tried its citator uh, called Intersight to see how many hits I got. Uh, and the number of hits I got was 46. So it was cited in 46 cases. Great. Um, but uh, in 2018, I looked up the same case and shepherdized it on Lexis and it had 47 cases. So there was one less. Huh. And so I looked to see what's the one case. And, and the 46 cases that were in Intersight were also in the Lexis shepherdized list. So what was the one case? Well, the one case that wasn't uh, listed in Decisis uh, was a New York Intermediate uh, court, Appellate Court, an appellate division uh, case, um, and uh, it, it just didn't show up. Uh, so I took that case and searched for the case on its own in Decisis, and I got a message uh, that said that, uh, let's see, this case is outside the scope of Decisis case law collection. Uh -huh. And uh, that was a 1921 case from uh, a New York appellate division uh, court. So, okay, not the hottest thing in the world, but, uh, you know, 1921, I mean, you know, it's, it's a real thing. And then um, I checked elsewhere. Uh, it was available on case text. It was available at case.law. It was available on fast case. And, and those are all free. Um, you know, the case text, if you search, you can get a free, you know, yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. Site. And then and also I, I subscribed to Bloomberg Law and it was available on that. So that was that was kind of like, hmm. Yeah. Um, yeah. That was the number one. Uh, yeah. So and then the, the number two issue, I would say, was this. Um, so the citator, again, they called Intersight. Right. Uh, Which is a part of the thing. part of what they really kind of promote that they have a, a great citator on this. Uh, if you look yeah. at their website, they they play that up. Yeah, that 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 term did come up, you know, a lot on the different introductory pages. Um, there's like intersight report for the citations, and there was also the analytics um, thing. Um, but just looking at the intersight report, so the the hits that I got there. Um, it ran to, so 46 hits, ran to about five pages, uh, web, web pages. So you'd have to click on, you know, page one, you see that, then page two to get to the next set, three, four, five. I was like, okay, I want to download this report so I could have it. Can't do that. I couldn't download a PDF of the Intersight report. So, you know, I had from 2018 when I looked at, uh, the Shepherd's report on the case from Lexus. I had that PDF in my files. Uh, great, but I couldn't just readily make one uh, of this case from Decisis. I went to uh, the online chat and customer service uh, told me that you can't do that uh, right now. But they did say that the customer service person, and it was actually escalated to a second person. The customer service person I spoke to did say they agreed that that was an important feature that they would talk to their engineers, uh, to be able to download the intersight report. So that's kind of, kind of huge. And they did mention yeah. that I could do a PDF of each page and I'm like, okay, well, that's just one case. If I have a lot of cases, that would have been <laughs> right. sort of a, sort of a pain. Yeah. Uh, so that was the second thing. And then the third thing um, was, so these are all old, those are old cases I was looking at. So a current case in the Eighth Circuit uh, Federal uh, Court of Appeals, there's a docket there that I'm watching. Uh, I'm watching on Bloomberg Law, but I'm and Pacer and everywhere. Um, and so I was like, all right, let me see if this comes up on Decisis. Um, it did come up, uh, but 
a, the most recent entry when I checked, which was, uh, was it, I guess, was it yesterday or, yeah, yesterday, um, uh, was May 5th. Uh, and I know that it's been actually updated more recently, July 5th. And so I wanted to see, can I get this uh, docket uh, for the Eighth Circuit uh, updated? And there was like no button or anything to request that. So again, I went to the online chat and asked, uh, is there a way to update the docket for this appellate case in the federal court? Uh, and uh, they, the response was no. Um, it was actually, unfortunately, we do not have that functionality. And, and there was no kind of subsequent comment like, uh, that's really important and we'll talk to our engineers. No, it was just like, we don't have that. Now, yeah. um, you know, I, I mean, I, I kind of felt like the, when on my first online chat, per, uh, like with uh, customer service, when it was escalated, I was talking to someone who kind of felt like, oh, there were like like minds lawyer. I can tell this is important. Maybe this person, you know, didn't quite have all of the info at the person's fingertips. Who knows? But anyway, uh, you know, not being able to update the docket and seeing some of the more recent filings is kind of like, I'm not even sure what the point was to yeah. have the service. I'm actually really not sure what's the value there. Yeah. So um, that was 200 a month they wanted for that for. So that's one. Yeah, that, one ninety five. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. Yep. Yeah. So, and yeah. you know, and the whole point is they have three levels, 125, yeah. 145 and 195. The only reason I would sign up for 195, that's the trial that I was doing is because it had dockets. You know, and and like, you know, like I, I like I've been using Bloomberg Law for almost 10 years now. And, you know, it's got it's got like, uh, you know, there's, it's got its imperfections. Um, but overall, mm -hmm. I kind I've been getting more value out of that than others, because one thing, it's docket service has been very handy to me. Uh, and it's all it's yeah. basically included. Yeah, so I was like, yeah. all right, let me check this out with the sizes. They have dockets. OK, but no, um, I, you know, couldn't update a docket that's a problem and it's so weird because like where did the docket even come from yeah i mean yeah. why was they it might, updated? They, yeah i mean yeah it, that that's pretty strange it, it, i mean it, lexus you know lexus is pulling that stuff down and from the dockets and the court dockets and and if they've if they've they've certainly are going to have more recent uh i mean they're going to have at least the same day docket stuff on lexus generally they usually pull it down every night all the current docket information so you would think uh, they'd pass along that same stuff to this service, but anyway, well, that that's really that's really great. I really appreciate your 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 sharing that with us, and 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 I'm glad our our, our discussion uh, inspired you to uh, take a look at that. Um, and uh, like I say, if you're if you're having interest in uh, us, I can I can share your publish your your email up on my blog or somewhere else or if you've got it published somewhere i can share it around and let people know uh you, you're uh, you've got a much more detailed uh, write up here than than you just talked about so that was really great but uh yeah any any uh, anybody have any any questions uh any of the panelists have any questions for uh jeff about this or no all right well hey thanks a lot i really appreciate it i'm going to now uh mute you, I guess, again. Uh, uh, and But thanks a lot for doing that. Good to talk to you. All right. I think I unmuted him. Okay. Uh, all right. Well, that was that was really cool. I love I love uh, that, uh, that uh, the conversation uh, it spurred somebody to go out and, and, and give it a try. Um, so uh, in other news this week, uh, uh, well, I, I don't know, maybe sent a, a since we're talking about court dockets, uh, we, we actually have a, a possible transition here and, and B since Nikki wasn't here last week anyway, uh, and she's got an article that relates to court dockets then uh, and, and because she has the best background of the day. Uh, I, I guess that that gives her first dibs at, at, at going next. I'm winning. Who knew? I'm going to compete every week with this background from now on. I'm all in. Uh, so what I wrote about um, both for, I started with um, ABA Journal and then I sort of did a follow-up piece on Above the Law <clears throat> and it was on e-filing tools. Um, what I've been doing at the ABA Journal where I write about different types of software each month is I've, um, for the last four months or so, I've been focusing on software that enables remote either depositions or court appearances. 
um, since it seems like one of the biggest uh, long-term effects of the pandemic is going to be some remote court appearances, uh, especially for more routine matters. So I figured it was high time that I focused on some of those in part because somebody wrote to me about one of my columns and asked me if I would follow up with trial presentation software. So I've just been doing this whole series of tools to enable remote um, court appearances and depositions. And so I figured e-filing would be the sort of next most obvious one because that's yet another thing I think that has been accelerated by the pandemic. Prior to the pandemic, this was already on the um, increase uh, in large part because um, a lot of different jurisdictions across the country were either making it mandatory or optional, but we're starting to transition to um, the e-filing option. And for a lot of attorneys, <clears throat> that can be stressful because if you screw up your e-filing, uh, that can you know, have a dramatic effect on your case. And if it's a particularly important filing, it could be the end of your case if you do it incorrectly. So, and the other problem that you'll see, and I talk about this in um, my articles, uh, and I'll post links to those uh, momentarily, is that these um, e-filing sites that the courts have just sort of run the gamut in terms of uh, the actual interface, in terms of their functionality, in terms of their intuitiveness. Oftentimes they look like something from 1995, like web pages from so long ago. And so they're really difficult to navigate. And I, it, that makes it all the more stressful for attorneys trying to file something at the last minute, which you know you probably shouldn't be doing uh, to begin with, but it happens, right? So, um, <clears throat> so what I wrote about was, uh, thanks, Bob. So for the ABA Journal, I went through and sort of talked about this phenomenon of how e-filing is increasing and you know the um, social distancing of the pandemic made it even uh, more both desirable and used by everybody. And so in order to avoid this issue of worrying that you're gonna do it incorrectly, there are companies that provide e-filing services for you. They understand how to navigate the sites, they do it all the time. And you can um, connect with these companies and use software that they provide online, You know, instruct them with what you'd like to be done and then they'll do it for you. <clears throat> and for a lot of lawyers, especially larger law firms, that's the best option. And that's the easiest way to make sure that your cases and your documents are properly filed with the court. So uh, in my ABA journal column, I covered <clears throat> some of the most well-known um, services that are out there, especially the ones that have the broadest jurisdiction. There are lots of um, services that will focus on a specific state. For example, there's only a handful that I'm aware of that cover uh, a large number of different jurisdictions. And so what I tried to do with the ABA journal column was write about enough services that had a variety of different service areas that no matter who's reading it, they would be covered and be able to find an e-filing service that would work for their firm. And then um, in my above the law <clears throat> uh, column, I kind of took a little bit broader of a view um, because my ABA journal columns are very focused on, this is the type of software, this is why it's good. And here's some of the biggest players and here's some things to consider when choosing it. And that's what I do every month at my ABA journal column. And in about the law, I just took a broader view of the phenomenon as a whole um, and linked to, and also talked about the concept, not only of e-filing, but of just virtual court proceedings in general and provided links to some of the columns I'd written that talked about the specific types of tools or software or services that sort of help um, make those connections. Um, and then, you know, to tie it up in a knot, I also talked about how the other thing that really happened during the pandemic is that, uh, you know, you had to also learn in terms for business resiliency, most law firms realized that they had to have certain systems in place to ensure business continuity, which would include, you know, um, either standalone services or law practice management software, which, you know, so the standalones would be um, billing software, uh, payment processing software, document management, document assembly, um, CRM software, online intake software for, you know, uh, potential clients. Um, so just a host of different functionalities that, uh, and also there's VoIP that lawyers need to have in place um, to ensure, and Zoom, you know, some sort of video conferencing software. So there's all sorts of tools that lawyers need to have in place to ensure business continuity, no matter what the situation, so that their firms can continue to run, they can manage their business, and they can appear in court if necessary remotely. 
So I sort of tied the knot on those two columns together uh, on those different issues. That's what I focused on for those two columns. And I thought, it, thought I think it's interesting because things are changing and I do think there are gonna be some long-term effects, especially now that we have monkeypox. Anyone following the monkeypox? It's a little bit alarming. So <laughs> <laughs> we're all just going to be stuck in our houses forever. Okay. Wait a how do we, how do we make that transition there? How do we, <laughs> how do we get the monkeypox? Because <laughs> it's alarming. From e filing. Maybe maybe COVID's like slowing down and if you file your pox. documents electronically, you're less likely to be exposed to monkeypox. Right. Right. So there you go. <laughs> um, so that, yeah, no, I thought it was really interesting. And I think I think actually part of a, some of the e-filing uh, options out there are, are it's actually a little bit of a confusing uh, landscape of products sometimes, especially trying to figure out which which products cover which states and all of that. So I, I thought your uh, ABA Journal article uh, uh, was really uh, was, was helpful in that sense. And, and uh, I think I think it was the above the law article. Was that the one where I actually learned something I didn't know, which was that Zoom now has a a whole section of its website devoted to talking about the topic of hybrid and virtual courts uh who knew that that was actually kind of interesting to find out too uh but uh, you know i guess that tells you that uh as you say that it it is here to stay and it ain't going away anytime soon yeah i thought your your comment about the hybrid uh trials situation nikki was really uh, really interesting you know I, i've been kind of interested in that phenomenon for a while because it um it lets you do things in the courtroom um, in a smoother way. I mean, if you if and the example that I always think about is an opening statement. I mean, if you were able to uh, pre-record your opening statement, have the judge deal with all the objections and interruptions and all that, so that when it went to the jury, it would be, you know, a, a presentation like they're used to seeing on YouTube or TV or something, which is a lot more interesting than having to become a disjointed uh, opening statement interrupted by 25 objections, many of which are meaningless and done just to throw you off track and all that jazz. Um, but, you know, I, 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 I sort of think that may be the future because um, nobody, I don't think people want to give up the particularly criminal uh, lawyers, uh, defense lawyers, and maybe even prosecutors for that matter, want to give up the the right of uh, being able to confront witnesses. And I understand that. And, you know, the, so the future may be some sort of hybrid kind of approach where part, some functions of the trial are done remotely and, you know, some are done in person and, um, you know, that might actually be a better system all the way around. So I thought it was an interesting take on it. Thanks. I thought that the Johnny Depp trial was particularly interesting to watch. Um, from that perspective in particular, because the witnesses just appeared in so many different ways. One guy was like driving, <laughs> you know, um, right. and some of them were recorded, some of them were live. Some of them just said the darndest things when they were testifying. I think sometimes when you're removed from the courtroom and testifying remotely, some of the decorum might be lost uh, in terms of what the witness is experiencing. And I think that was evident a little bit in the Johnny Depp trial, but it also just, made it possible for them to present their witnesses that otherwise might not have been able to take time off from work or might not have been able to afford to fly. Or if you are um, a public defender and you have a witness that's far away and you know, you're, you're clearly your office isn't gonna be able to afford to fly them in. So I think it can also really help certain aspects of um, uh, criminal justice system when you're trying to offer a, a strong defense for your client. So I thought it was a very interesting, very public example of that from that perspective and from the whole trial was just kind of ridiculous to watch, but <laughs> there are a lot of other things going on there too. <laughs> and even from the prosecution side, I mean, like when, you know, when, uh, when I used, when I used to try cases, like if, if, if it was like an old case and a, and a police officer or detective had retired, usually they would go to like Florida or California or Arizona. Then it's like, we'd have to fly them over all, all the way out to all the way back to New York and put them up and everything like that. And, you know, that, that became a, a huge pain for us. So I, I could definitely see that, you know, like even, even though, you know, there's a, Again, that'd be interesting with the confrontation issue as well. But then, um, you know, just 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 not just being able to cut those costs and not having to not having to worry about you know flying flying tracking down a police officer, flying them back to the back to the city and whatnot. That would be a huge savings of time and money. But yeah, then again, I would wonder about the I would wonder about the system. I'm in question because I don't think I don't think defense lawyers would be very uh, accommodating of that. Yeah, for sure. 
But you never know if they maybe if they had some witnesses they wanted at a given trial, I can see how there might be a little give and take. But you'd still like have to object on the record probably and preserve it for appeal, even if the judges balanced in both parties wanted to have someone remote. You never know. But it'll be interesting to see how that plays out, though, for sure. Yeah. One one of the downsides for me is uh, I'm I'm on this arbitration panel in the Virgin Islands, and I used to usually go down two or three times a year to hear cases. And we I, I was supposed to have one coming up in September, and the parties just decided, you know, let's just do it virtually. We don't really need to have you come down here. I'm like, yeah, I kind of need to come down there. <laughs> So that, you know, that that's one of the downsides. But I, Greg Siskin comment in the chat, I think he just just put it to the hosts uh, and panelists that we do mass immigration lawsuits. And one of the nice benefits of the hearings being in Zoom is the ability of all the plaintiffs who are often all over the world to be able to watch, uh, which that, that, that's pretty cool. Yeah. Um, and, uh, I, you know, one of the other interesting things about the Johnny, Johnny Depp trial was the way the media, I mean, I, yes, it was Johnny Depp. So Johnny Depp, I never heard. So it was, but the way the media covered it was so much focus on on the social media around the trial and and constantly is like sort of trying to take the pulse of social media almost as a way of trying to predict how the trial would turn out, which I guess in a way turned out to be, um, I won't say spot on, but in fact, it, it, you know, that sort of is how the, how the case turned out. But the, this weight of, uh, seemed like the weight of sentiment on social media was for, for Johnny Depp, which I didn't quite get myself. But uh, um, it was just a way, it was fascinating to see. I mean, thinking about, you know, like some outlets like Court TV or something, just trying kind of focus in on covering a trial and uh, showing what's going on in the courtroom. And here, the, the whole world of social media almost became an extension of what was going on in the courtroom, the way it was covered. And it was really fascinating. Well, I saw it was interesting how like, you know, I mean, because I because like, um, you know, I um, I've written quite a few features about like law and pop culture and like how they, you know, how you know the intersection between that and whatnot. And one one of the constant refrains for like you know, like when you look at like Law and Order, you... Victor froze. You froze. But... Oh no! Sounded like it was going somewhere really interesting. Yeah, <laughs> Left us right. hanging. <laughs> Alas, um... his dog ate the internet cable. There he is. No, sorry, did I freeze? Oh, yeah, you sorry. froze. Yeah. We, we, all right, yeah. Yeah. all right. Sorry. Um, yeah, I mean, like, like, you know, in writing a lot about like law and pop culture, it's just like, you know, what, what one refrain I always hear from actual lawyers is that, you know, obviously, you know, on TV they script they script, uh, you know, the trials in certain ways so you have your big aha moment or you have like the moment where the lawyer gets the gets the witness or the witness, you know, gets the lawyer or whatnot, and it rarely ever happens in real life. But I felt like, you know, with the TikTokification of the Johnny Depp Amber Heard. Things like they were able to take like little clips like that where you had like the lawyer getting getting Amber Heard or you had like the lawyer like you know um, or you had like the witness kind of kind of um, you know talking back to one of the lawyers and and that went viral at one point I was like oh well this must be a big deal for you too or something like that and, and I kind of felt like, okay yeah now now you're kind of seeing a little bit of that where you, you you get those aha moments and they make them go viral and that and those are the moments that people pick, people pick up on because that's what they're used to seeing so yeah it, it, it's definitely interesting I mean it if I mean you know I don't I don't know how much how much of that impact how much of that impact will be on future trials uh but yeah i mean like i mean yeah, if if just imagine if like oj simpson had had that like you know like there'd been tech talk during the oj trial like that the glove moment would have gone viral like you know some of the other you know less than savory parts of that trial probably would have gone viral too so. yep yeah i mean questionably the 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 glove moment did go viral to the extent we could do it then uh it really yeah like it, no it, it was a very interesting trial uh, and yeah, and I mean, I think, I think the you know to a point Bob made earlier that uh, the social media weight seemed to flow towards Depp, despite um, a lot of the stuff that had been in previous previous litigation. And I think a lot of it was that they did a really good job of kind of localizing it to being a defamation case. Uh, they really tamped down on whoa, 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 put aside whether or not bad things happen did this specific bad thing and and you know it, which was a highly technical way of going about it and yet they were able to communicate that to regular folks sufficiently well that he ended up getting the the benefit of the doubt on social media uh, part of that's that he's a star but i mean i guess she technically is too so yeah 
I think he's also a better actor and it showed because he was incredibly <laughs> likable and funny. And she just came off as sort of mechanized and fake. And I and I think he just told his story so much better. Are we talking about so in the trial? Are we talking about in the trial or in Aquaman? <laughs> also mechanized and fake. Right? But I think it was just That whole movie you could argue was mechanized and fake. <laughs> <laughs> but I thought it was so interesting it I mean I can't imagine I I think he there was there were some elements of who he really was in his testimony but I think he was they were both pretty clearly acting and you could see moments where that were their they would their face would drop the acting face would drop you'd see it more with Amber than him but I don't think that that was the true Johnny Depp but he cer certainly came off as very likable and approachable and appealing and smart and funny and you know it, it made a difference oh this would be my dog Ozzy welcome to the show Ozzy <laughs> Ozzy does not look too interested right now but as, as, if Nikki's be as if Nikki's background couldn't get any better now we have likable <laughs> dogs showing up <laughs> there appears to be a hailstorm happening here in the office so um oh, hope it doesn't, hope it doesn't head, head to upstate New York uh yeah he's gonna i mean go should inside. be going the other direction so yeah i literally did not watch one moment of the johnny dev trial i don't think i don't i mean i probably saw some on, the, on news clips or something but i did not watch any of it It was all over tiktok like the tiktokification my new favorite word that was a great way to describe it like you at least i couldn't tiktok knows what you want to see yeah and i just watched I clearly the nikki black i wanted to see that and, <laughs> i just go for the nikki black videos on tiktok <laughs> they're the best she's very talented here you know yeah Funny, yeah. humorous, yeah. on spot, yeah. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, well, um, you know, uh, one thing uh, one thing that could happen with with virtual trials is that maybe uh, judges could start ruling on uh, ruling on motions using uh, like a thumbs up emoji emoji or a thumbs down emoji or something. Uh, or a Joe, poop emoji. What, do you, what do you think? You think there's a place for emojis in in courts? Yeah, you know, uh, that was that was great. Um, so let me. Uh, yeah. So let's talk about that. So my uh, so I didn't write anything because, again, driving cross country. So I had to kind of look for other uh, stories to highlight this week. I found one from our friends who are not represented here at Legal Tech News. So I thought I'd talk about that. Uh, it was a piece from a partner who at uh, well shareholder i guess they call them uh, who was talking about how emojis are becoming a much bigger deal in employment litigation which isn't shocking right uh it, the, the the most obvious way somebody's going to get in trouble in an employment context is uh sending eggplants when they shouldn't be sending eggplants right so the the lift of this move towards emojis got me thinking from a, you know, it's interesting as a just generic tech story, but it also got me thinking about some of the conversations that I've been having over the course of the last few conferences I've gone to and talked to folks about, you know, we've talked a long time about the AI ability to grind through thousands and thousands and millions of documents and be like, here's what's important. Uh, how much is the AI picking up on whoa, this emoji's here, and in this context, that's a problem. And, you know, I've actually had conversations with a couple of companies who talk about, yeah, that's something that they're they're considering and something that they actually have a capability to do. Uh, I didn't, you know, I saw demos, so obviously a, a demo is always going to look nicer than uh, reality. But in the demos, it did seem like it was picking up on subtleties like that and saying, you know, this otherwise innocuous series of emojis seems like it could be problematic. You should take a look at that, uh, which, you know, for uh, a realm of law like employment litigation, where this is going to become an even bigger deal in the emojification, which was the thing before the TikTokification <laughs> uh, of the world. It's it's an interesting angle. Like, how do we deal with that? And to what extent are our robot overlords going to have to figure out answers to that? Yeah, that was really interesting. When I saw the, when I saw the, I thought the article was actually uh, an interesting article. Uh, and then uh, uh, I was just kind of quickly Googling, you know, uh, e how, whether e-discovery software can, can collect uh, emoji 
data and there are actually a bunch of articles out there and, and i mean some of the certainly some of the products out there say they can and i don't see why they shouldn't be able to because they're just image files and uh they, they should be able to be collected uh but uh, the the article was kind of interesting in sort of talking about the admissibility into evidence. Like it, one of the points it raised is, well, is an emoji hearsay? And I started, I don't know, is is, an emo is that an out of court statement offered for the truth of the assertion in the in the emoji? I mean, what does that even mean? I don't oh. know. No. It, uh, uh, so the lesson of the last week, not to get to uh, more um, non tech related legal news. But the lesson of last week was nobody understands how hearsay works. And it's really not that hard, people. <laughs> all, all, like that whole January 6th hearing was people talking about how this is hearsay. And I was like, it's not. Uh, I took that test. I did, a well, I, I did pretty well on it. It's not hearsay. Uh, but nobody knows what that is. And I think people just want to slap that word on things because the offered for the truth of the matter part, everyone seems to be struggling with. Right, because like that is the hard yeah, part. You sent an eggplant emoji is not offered for the truth of the matter. Like that is a that is what happened. The context of it, you know, you have to bring out in some degree of in court testimony. But the fact that that happened is not hearsay. But. Right. Yeah. Yeah. There were two parts about it that I thought were really interesting. The, the first is, have you ever read the decisions where the judges are trying to talk about the nuances? of an emoji like I don't even know what an emoji is and then they're trying to like interpret like what does this emoji mean in this context and I, I mean I've got I'm I'm Gen X I've got Gen Z kids half the time I don't know what an emoji means and it, it changes you know what these emojis mean change over time and I can't keep up so I think it's so funny that when you try to see these judges try to interpret what an emoji meant in a specific situation in this formalistic legalese language in a case you know, to boot. But then the other thing that I thought was interesting is <clears throat> with, you know, when you reference uh, this AI in terms of e-discovery, I mean, I think maybe the AI can collect for e-discovery purposes. There was this emoji here and this emoji there. But I think that it's even more just when you get to the next level of AI is trying to interpret the meaning of the emojis. Like if they're trying to, you know, one of the requests is for a particular type of statement you know, the emojis can very much change the context of the words in which they appear, you know? So how, it, the AI has a hard time interpreting legalese to begin with, or sarcasm, or, you know, other types of human emotion that's um, in speech. So how are they gonna, when you get to the point where they're trying to interpret the emoji, I mean, it's just a free-for-all. I can't imagine they're gonna be able to do it. But I thought those two things, when you take that concept a little, those are the most things that really caught my eye about those two issues. Yeah, it was, I was thinking, you know, I thought about this before too. You, you can say, well, you know, an emoji can, can mean different things in different contexts with different words, uh, and it can be vague and ambiguous, but so can words. <laughs> so, I mean, the only difference is with words, we, maybe we have a broader context of human understanding, but I'm not sure that's true when I read some of the Supreme Court opinions anymore either. So <laughs> it may, it may, you know, as, as a lot of judges I was before used to say, guess we'll just have to let the jury decide it. <laughs> I don't know. Should, should we put this question in, in the chat to the, to the full, uh, to the full audience here, because they, they may know the answer to it. I, I never knew that one either. Oh, yeah, no. Um, yeah, that was so, just so going to question. panelists, oh, yeah. the hosts and panelists. Oh, yeah, yes. yeah. Oh, yeah, no, fair enough. Yeah, no, the I actually didn't know this until relatively recently. I think actually in one of the conversations I had with one of the companies who said their AI uh, captures this stuff, the poop emoji was created to be chocolate ice cream. There's apparently a corresponding <laughs> white emoji that looks exactly the same and it was supposed to be the vanilla and then they had a chocolate uh and they introduced the two of them at the same time and people immediately started making this one poop and it took off and uh and i yeah no it was definitely oh i wish i remember the company i feel so bad that i can't but whichever company was talking me through this was saying that part of the value of their ai is you have to learn context and it evolves over time and they were like this was built to be chocolate ice cream, and here we are. So this is the, the Mr. Softy emoji. 
So yeah, so yeah. I can see how that, that would be problematic for litigation then, because it's like, okay, what if, yeah. what if, what if I was, you know, said telling someone I wanted chocolate ice cream, and they were like, you called me, blah blah blah. Well, see, that's yeah. the thing. So, so that emoji can be said, and it's not hearsay. If you said this emoji is poop, then that's hearsay because it's being offered for the truth of the matter. It you you can say it happened, and then you need other testimonial evidence to prove what it meant in the see all right see this was a lesson we should be getting cle for this this is good where's where's and this is why we can't have this is why we can't have nice things things as human beings (laughs) right like we get this cute little ice cream emoji and immediately comes poop it reminds me of that ai that they introduced on twitter that became like racist and sexist in 20 minutes and they had to shut it down because of it learned from what was said to it which was a bunch of human beings being idiots so like we can never have nice things we ruin everything was that the Tay, yeah. the Tay AI thing? <laughs> yeah, Is that, that what one. you're talking about? Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, that one's that one's fantastic. Hilarious story. Yeah, I, I think Greg Lambert hit hit the cone on the head here. I mean, if, if it's if it's not in a bowl or in a cone, then it's not ice cream. It's I mean, you don't just see a mm. you don't just see like soft serve ice point. cream just sitting in a plop on the ground. Um, well, you do. That happens all the time to poor little three year olds. And then your well, day as a parent is ruined. But, but then it's not all <laughs> nice and swirly. And uh... all right. Um, I, I think I think it's an appropriate time to move on to a completely different topic, Victor, which is uh, NFTs. Yes. Yeah, so speaking of poop emoji, NFTs. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> they're more, they're, yeah, you can, like, you um... can buy some very valuable NFTs of poop emojis. <laughs> or, or yeah, or like or like the the original like artwork for the poop emoji or something. Then you could you know, you you, you could buy that and now it'd be worth like you know two cents I guess. Um, so yeah, I thought it was I just just one of those things. Like I mean, I've I've you know I don't collect NFTs. I I mean I don't I really don't see the point of them. But a lot of people you know obviously spend money on them and and as a huge a big market for it and whatnot. Um, and I thought it was just interesting how like yeah, because I, I was kind of wondering like sort of like how the NFT. How the NFT market was doing, considering that you know um, cryptocurrency right now, the the value is in the is in the toilet, and I guess you know now we have our answer. Um, it's you know one of those things where it's like you know obviously I mean NFTs are becoming a big uh, marketing tool for a lot of for a lot of uh, companies and a lot of uh, industries and whatnot. Even some law firms are offering some, and um, you know now it's like but now it's like you know you, you kind of look at sort of you know how you're um, you know you look at the um, oh sorry I guess I said that the host and panelist. Um, you look at like sort of how, how how the how the how the crypto market is doing in general, and you know you, you kind of see how that is reflective in the in the in the fluctuations and whatnot. I mean, you have artwork going for like millions and millions of dollars in NFT form, and then I wonder how much they're worth now considering the value of of crypto. So I just thought it was interesting how you know, and plus it's like the other angle of it was that like that this particular article was talking about how like people aren't really talking about it, even though the value of NFTs has has, has obviously you know crashed along with the with the with the crypto market and you know I, you know i mean i thought that was it's kind of an interesting angle like you know maybe people just don't want to talk about it or they just don't entirely understand what's going on or you know there's, there's, there's still kind of the, the the idea of like you know crypto being a hedge against traditional you know markers of financial uh financial strength and whatnot so the idea that they're not completely correlated so um so i said those are interesting things going on and you know obviously you know with the law firms that are getting into the nft train you know it's kind of a it's kind of, and just the crypto train in general. It's just it's just a reminder to kind of just just be careful and just kind of re- remind them that at the, at the end of the day, it's still a it's still a commodity and one a very very volatile one at that, and one that you know the value can just fluctuate like that just radically, and and you have no idea from one day to the next how much it's going to be worth. So uh, I want to share because you're mentioning this topic. This is mildly related, but a couple weeks ago I tweeted this, and I thought it was true uh, that the funniest collection of inter- of words on the internet uh, came out the other day, which was from NBC News, pointing out that Anna uh, Anna Delvey, uh, that that woman, uh, says she's trying to move away from her scammer persona and plans to launch a collection of NFTs. <laughs> just the most unintentionally hilarious set of words. I have ever read and I just thought I should share. All right, move on. <laughs> yeah, this was, I thought this was a, a really interesting article. I, uh, I, I don't even, there's parts of it where I didn't even know what to make of, like the the, the quote where they talk about drive, driving up uh, NFT prices by people who are kind of uh, creating these syndicates to share the trading among themselves. And the quote is, 
we call it circle jerking and we circle jerk each other's nfts to increase their prices because that tells you that there's also a lot of men involved in yeah. well one, the other thing was that, like yeah they were saying that like yeah like they may have shorted their own they may have shorted their own nfts so therefore they could they can make money that way i'm just kind of like that's that you're, you're you're putting way too much energy into all this stuff i mean more power to you if if this is how you make your money but my god i i i, I don't know how they keep track it's a of boiler this. room yeah. It's it's a boiler room mentality, like a pump and dump scheme. And now and just like just like cryptocurrency, they're going to create a situation where a bunch of people hold a bunch of them that they need to move. And so they're going to artificially inflate the interest in them so that they can get out because it's all a scheme. man. And then when people steal them or copy them, they start complaining to the government that they need to help regulate it. And the yeah. suit, the quicker uh, uh, a college football podcast editor that I listen that I follow said it best. These people are running so quickly into accidentally inventing the FDIC. It's crazy. Every few days, there's another crypto person going like, "Money, the money system that the government uses is fake, but they need to step in and protect us in case somebody tries to steal our money." And I'm like, "You idiots! We invented the system already. It is done." Oh God. Anyway. Yeah. All right. Um, well, all right. Maybe I will. Since we have a little time, I will. I'm gonna. I'm gonna cheat and talk about a story we talked about last week. But last week, Zach talked a little bit about a story uh, uh, about uh, the launch of this uh, legal analytics product called Predicta, and uh, I just got around to writing about it this week. <laughs> uh, so uh, uh, even though we hit on it a little bit, I just wanted to bring it up again a little bit, just because I. I really got a chance to dive into it a little bit more and and uh, look at it and uh it, it really is a, a a pretty interesting product and uh i, I of of anything uh, i wrote about this week this was certainly the the post that got uh, by far the most uh, interest and attention uh including on social media uh and you know the whole idea is can can you come up with analytics uh, that can actually predict what's going to happen with your with your case with your particular motion, not just uh, not just how judges tend to rule in general on motions for summary judgment or motions for summary judgment in intellectual property cases or that sort of thing, uh, but but can you get down to the nuances of your case? And this company says that's what it's doing, and it claims to be doing it with a roughly eighty seven percent accuracy rate. Uh, and they claim they've tested this back over 10 years of, of PACER data uh, to establish this, this accuracy rate, looking at their predictions versus what actually happened in cases. Uh, and uh, the, the trick with what they do here is that rather than just pull PACER data, which is what all these other analytics uh, products do or, or state docket data, uh, they pull in as much data as they can about a judge uh where the judge went to law school what's the judge's political affiliation uh what firms has the judge worked at before uh, uh you know uh, what what uh, political contributions have they made uh what, what's their overall financial status uh and, and they they you know slice and dice and cross-reference all of this so that they can in theory say you know if if you're a a a, a plaintiff in a case uh, in which you are going up against a big mega company represented by big mega firm and, and uh, ex-lawyer at big mega firm, uh, then your chances of, of surviving a motion to dismiss are 96% or 10% or whatever it might be. And they're looking at the judge's propensities. Does, does the judge uh, tend to favor big firms? Does the judge tend to favor this particular firm? uh you know does the judge tend to uh like republicans better than democrats or something i mean it's just really fascinating to get down into the weeds like this of of, of uh, decision making whether it all works uh you know uh, so far we can we have we have just their word to take for it but they they are out there it is a commercial product and uh they have launched and uh well i guess we'll we'll see time will tell whether it's working and they want to expand it out into other right now it's just motions to dismiss in federal court they want to expand in other kinds of motions and into state courts as well but uh i, I think it's really one of the more fascinating uh, uh products i've seen uh in, in recent times yeah, i guess i'd be uh, interested because yeah. like one of the things that i saw was the um 
what was it like, like just reading your reading your piece it was like you know whether or not they were influenced by the prestige of a firm and i was like how would they how would they track that information though it's like if, it, if if you have like you know kirkland and ellis going against like some other firm and then he rules for kirkland and ellis then does that automatically mean that he's 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 he or she is is influenced by by the prestige of the firm or is just that yes. they had a stronger they had a stronger position i mean <laughs> yeah it, it, it's it's or or, yeah. or or i mean yeah like do they because I don't, I don't, I don't, I don't think they they ever really single out lawyers for their, you know, um, for their for their, you know, the strength of their arguments and whatnot in their opinions. So I mean, I, I'd be interested to see how they how they how they how they how they calculate that data. Yeah, somebody said to me on Twitter, "Good lawyers know the law; great lawyers know the judge." Uh, and we'll see if that's a, a true axiom. Steve, I forgot. I did. I didn't come to you yet. I don't know why. I somehow <laughs> thought we had started back with you uh, back at the beginning so uh uh fortunately we have, so we have time no no not at all no it's a really it's a really good story too so i'm sorry well yeah and it, it ties in a little bit with a couple of things we've been talking about the base and particularly what you've just been talking about bob but there was um there's this outfit called the brennan center for justice and i think it's affiliated with nyu law school and yeah, for several since 2019 they they basically run demographics on uh high state court judges particularly with respect to diversity and, and other things and um so they updated it recently and it basically confirmed uh what has been the case for a long time and that it, that is that most high state court highest state courts are composed of old white men uh, in a very scary sort of way, particularly when you think about most of the most of the work that gets done in courts uh, is done in state courts. And so you know, we often hear about diversity at the federal court level and Supreme Court level and law firms and you know, don't think about the state courts. But when you start looking at these statistics, uh, 20 states, there are no justices, no justices that identify as a person of color, including 12 states where people of color make up 20% of the population. There are no black judges in 28 states. There are no Latino judges in 39 states. There are no Asian American justices in 43 states. There are no Native American justices in 47 states. And I'm sure this will catch Nikki's eye. 39% of the sitting justices are former prosecutors, but only 7% are former public defenders. And so, you know, you start looking at this and you, you think, well, you know, it's, it's just scary because, first of all, most of these justices are elected, not appointed, which, which says something about um, the state of the, of the world. Um, and without any with so little influence by people of color and women for that matter um you know how do these justices decide cases from any viewpoint other than the viewpoint that they that they have and that is of, of old white men and maybe they're not old but they're mostly white men uh and so that's scary and it is also scary in the sense of you know how people are perceiving the high the high state courts how people of color perceive you know the their cases that go before these these panels of 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 white men when they may be people of color and how can how can people of color believe that they are going to get a fair shake when you you look at what you see looking at the at the court panels are are all are white men it, that you know, to the extent we have a rule of law left, which, you know, is, is, <laughs> as Joe and others have pointed out, is, is a little shaky in and of itself. But how can how can we believe that this is going to endear any sort of confidence in the rule of law by, by, by African-Americans, by Hispanics, by any any number of, of groups of people that that you want to look at. And, you know, it, it seems, you know, I, I don't exactly know how they did all this. The, the report indicates that they looked at biographical data and, and a lot of uh, data put together by a researcher at the University of Utah. But I would think it would be 
fairly easy to ferret this kind of information out if you put your put your mind to it. And I don't have any reason to think that that um, you know it's it's in any way inaccurate. And what one particular uh, uh, statistic that stood out that I didn't mention, and that is that men hold fifty nine percent of state Supreme Court state seats. Um, which is really sort of striking when we now think hear about that that much of the abortion fights are now being challenged in in state courts under state mm-hmm. constitutions to be decided by primarily white men sitting on the bench. This doesn't doesn't makes me sort of shudder about uh, about how that's going to work out. So I thought it was uh, a pretty pretty damning report and a pretty scary report in a lot of ways. It is. Yeah. And I, I'm going to shift real quick to a story just because I heard it over the last week in my travels. I was chatting with a lawyer uh, between between the, the coasts, uh, and they were telling me a story uh, that fits into this about a uh, one state where the law is that state Supreme Court justices are elected. But if there's a resignation between periods, they get they can be nominated and then they get to stay basically and there's therefore an unwritten rule basically that only crazy people retire during the uh the only crazy people run during the elections and everyone times their retirement so that they can stay in the good graces and that uh the only black justice who ever got on that court was a very very competent and ultimately chief justice of that court but he had to run because his own party was like, well, I mean, I don't know. We, we seem like we're seem like we're liberal enough. I don't know. And he was like, no, black people need to be on this court. I guess I'm going to run. So he ran in the um, he got an opening and ran in the crazy person election to therefore get himself in <laughs> apparently. So, but it, it's a, I heard that story and my takeaway was that, you know, a real reminder that even the people who think they're helping are often not helping uh, and that they they are a big part of this problem. You know, there are some folks who just don't care, but there are other folks who claim to care and aren't doing enough. So that was my takeaway from that story. And since I just heard it two days ago, it was in top of mind when I read your piece. Yeah, I was wondering uh, what one thing I didn't see in the report anywhere is is a breakdown of, of chief justices. And I was curious uh, what that would look like. So I know in Massachusetts, we have a black woman as chief justice of our highest court, I'm very happy to say. Um, but uh, I would love to see what the numbers are in terms of the, the chief justices, because obviously, as we, you know, in, in, in general, the chief justices have a lot of sway over, uh, over the courts. Uh, and, you mean, and you mean like, to- uh- like Chief Justice Roberts. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> uh, the other thing I, I would be interesting to, to find out is is to expand the study beyond just the, the highest courts of the state and look at the you know the courts of other jurisdictions of these states where you know where even more work is done uh, and there is yeah. even more contact with um, with the general population. Uh, and I've not seen any any studies on. That kind of thing. I would hope that they would be better, but I don't have much confidence that they would. Yeah, yeah. Any other thoughts on that? Any other thoughts on anything? Uh, <laughs> all right. Um, we will probably be back next week. I'm going to be traveling. Am I the only one going to Double A Double? You see, you're going to Double A Double, right? Or you're going also? So <laughs> see you and see you in Denver. I'm actually flying to Denver on Friday, but I think I get there in plenty of time that we could that I could do this next yeah, week. Yeah, so. I'm flying on Friday too, but I think I don't leave till after we're done. So I may be all in right. the airport. <laughs> okay. All right. Good. The way the way the flights go these days, I may be in the airport for a long time. So. <laughs> yeah. Right. Yeah. I, I maybe I should just drive out to uh, take take uh, my inspiration from Joe and drive out to Denver. You could, had, you could it, pick me. You could pick me up on the way. The air. Yeah. <laughs> not not too far out of my way to go down to Kentucky. On my way. Right. Um, great American road. Great American road trip. You've got a convertible. We all know from a previous I show. Have, so yeah. yeah. Right. I'm not sure it would make yeah. it to Denver, but. 
to do get a your kicks on route 66 <laughs> man like <laughs> whatever happened to the uh, above the law we were going to get an above the law van one year or something or was that legal talk network i forgot we were going to get a big party van and go around and do podcasts all over the country <laughs> i think that would be a great idea but i think it was I greg lambert maybe greg lambert was he part of that i forget who was going to do that uh like uh, actually like molly mcdonough and her crew did way back when she was at the aba journal they did a road trip legal rebels road trip all right yeah, that was before my time but yeah molly molly can tell you all about that she's in the audience today so yeah. she can yeah we should do um, it and then we can TikTok it then, yes exactly yeah uh all right good well we'll maybe see you next week <laughs> and uh thanks everybody for attending today and a reminder that we actually are you can find all the past shows at legaltechweek.libsyn.com or on youtube just search for legal tech week uh we're posting them all up on youtube as well so if you miss one you can find them there all right see ya have a good weekend, have a good weekend. bye all